Good morning, everyone. So today we're crossing the halfway point of our Esther study. But before we get into today's chapters, I think a summary of the story so far is in order. So we kicked off a few weeks ago with Paul in chapter one. We were introduced to Xerxes, the king of Persia, in all his vanity and drunkenness. His queen, Vashti, disrespects him and he deposes her. Then Jez led us through chapter two, where the secretly Jewish Esther becomes queen and her cousin Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate the king and in telling him helps prevent it. Then last week, those of us in the back hall with Peter, we went through chapter three, which is where the story really kicks off. So Haman, the king's right hand, spots Mordecai refusing to bow to him. Haman gets mad and tricks the king into signing an edict to have all Mordecai's people, the Jews, annihilated. So last week we left off on this cliffhanger. Will this edict be carried out? Will this be the end of the exiled Israelites? Then today, we're continuing with the next part of the story in two chapters, four and five. But because of time, we'll mostly be in chapter four. But even that chapter represents a fair amount of plot, so I'm going to continue summarizing for us for a few verses. Then when we get to the key part near the end of the chapter, I'll ask for our reading, at which point we'll start unpacking things. So if you want to follow the story in the Church Bibles, it's page 503 and then going into 504. Okay, so Esther chapter 4. Mordecai learns about the edict. He tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and goes into the city wailing loudly. Esther hears about Mordecai's mourning and starts a conversation through her attendants. Mordecai tells her everything about the edict and asks her to go to the king to plead for their people. Esther is initially, understandably, terrified, telling Mordecai that anyone who approaches the king without being summoned risks death. And besides, Esther says, it's been 30 days since the king summoned me. He may no longer even favor me. So at this point, if I could invite our reader up, please. So I'll be reading the rest of chapter 4, starting at verse 12. Uh, Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4, verse 12. And uh, to the end of the chapter. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther, repli- then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, 
gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Thank you very much, Ian, and uh, dramatic stuff there. So Mordecai says to Esther, just because you're the queen, don't think that you're impervious to death. Deliverance from the Jew- for the Jews will come from somewhere, but if you remain silent, you and your family will perish. Then he says one of the two most famous lines of this chapter and book. Who knows, maybe you were made queen for just such a time as this. Esther gets over her initial hesitation, asks that all the local Jews fast for three days for her, then she will go to the king. Then she says the other of the two most famous lines of this chapter and book. And if I perish, I perish. So, some powerful verses there and a lot to unpack. So let's start with Mordecai's speech and this suggestion that if she does nothing, Esther and her family will perish. Because, let's think about it, before he says this, Mordecai suggests that deliverance from the, for the Jews will come from somewhere. So he's not saying, if you do nothing, the edict will be carried out and you'll die with the rest of us. He's saying, if you do nothing, the Jews' deliverance will come from somewhere else, but you and your family will die. Now, as we've mentioned in previous services, the book of Esther makes no explicit reference to God, but we are meant to see God at work in the subtext. And here's a classic example. Mordecai here is talking about deliverance. Well, where's the deliverance going to come from? Deliverance will come from God. God will fulfill the promise he makes throughout the Old Testament and rescue his people from annihilation, paving the way for the saviour from King David's line. That's the person we call Jesus. But if deliverance will come from elsewhere, then why would Esther die? This is tricky, but the only reasonable conclusion I can come to is that Mordecai is saying Esther and family will die because God will punish her. Now, of course, that's incredibly uncomfortable for us. But to help us understand this, let's just remind ourselves of something. The list of incredible coincidences, in inverted commas, that this story is, clear, is clearly God working throughout. So Queen Vashti, presumably in full knowledge of the law, defies her king and is deposed. The king commissions a search for a new queen throughout the entire kingdom and the Jewish Esther happens to be chosen among them. Esther's cousin Mordecai just so happens to live in the palace complex, so can easily pass messages to her. And Mordecai just so happens to overhear a conspiracy to kill the king. 
Esther delivers the news and credits Mordecai for uncovering the plot, but presumably gets some of the credit from the king herself. Then Mordecai, living in the palace complex, is among the first to hear about the order to kill their people. Now, Esther just so happens to be in a position to approach the king about the edict. Mordecai recognizes that God has orchestrated this incredible series of events so Esther can step up and help save her people. After all these signs, if Esther did nothing, she would be disobeying God. And we know from plenty of other uncomfortable stories in the Old Testament that God doesn't take disobedience lightly. Now, I'm not saying this to make us comfortable with the idea. It's something we have to wrestle with. But I think it's important to be honest about this reading of the passage because it has key implications for us. But we'll get there. First, let's keep going through these verses. So we next get to the hopeful bit of Mordecai's speech, where he says, who knows, maybe you were made queen for just such a time as this. So again, Mordecai is recognizing God's work throughout recent events and suggests to Esther that she's been divinely chosen to approach the king in this desperate time. Then we get to Esther's speech and the next clear sign of God in the passage. She asks that all the local Jews fast for three days for her, and she and her attendants will do the same. Well, for what purpose? Fasting will clearly do nothing physical that would help Esther. Fasting doesn't create some practical tool she could use. So why fast? Well, biblically, fasting is often done with the intention of securing guidance and help from, well, from God. Moses fasts while waiting to hear from God at Mount Sinai. King David fasts in hope that his son will recover from illness. And after Esther's time, Ezra the priest orders the Jews to fast for safe passage on their way back from exile. And in all cases, you can bet that everyone involved would have been praying profusely during their fast as well. So Esther requests the group fast and, by implication, prayer, commits to seeing the king after that, then says the famous line, if I perish, I perish. The title I've been given today is A Revealing Reaction. Well, here it is. Esther's reaction to Mordecai's challenge reveals great courage. She is prepared to die in obedience to God and in an effort to save her people. But, If she thinks there's a possibility she's going to die, why does she order the fast? Well, like I said, the fast is probably to ask for God's guidance rather than protection per se. I'd imagine guidance for what to do and say to convince the king to stop the edict. But receiving such guidance doesn't preclude her from dying some other way. For all she knows, her efforts could help prevent the attack but the king could still have her killed. Or maybe Haman would kill her for challenging the edict he orchestrated. Either way, after her initial deliberation, Esther is showing her true heroic colors. She is prepared to die for God and for her people. Amazing. An incredible chapter in the story. 
But what does it have to do with us? How can we apply Mordecai's challenge and Esther's courageous response to our lives today? Thousands of years later, in a different part of the world, where we're not immediately under threat of annihilation. Well, let's look at our two heroes. It would seem that God has a plan through all these crazy not-coincidences, and he's chosen Esther and Mordecai to help enact it. But why these two? It's not their social status. They're part of a marginalized refugee community. It's not their ethnicity. At this point, that's mostly hidden from the people in charge. In Esther's case, it's certainly not her gender. As Paul touched on, in these times, women were treated as second-class citizens. God chooses unlikely people to fulfill his purposes. Abraham was a nobody, chosen as the founder of God's people over, say, one of his power-hungry Babylonian neighbors. David, a runt among his older brothers, is chosen to cut short the reign of Saul, who is described as a tall, choice young man. Mary, a teenage girl, is chosen to parent the Savior Jesus over, say, her relative Zachariah, who was an elder priest. All these people are given a test of their trust in God's character. Abraham is told to leave his family and go to a new land. The undersized David ends up facing the literal giant, Goliath. And Mary has to face her community as an unmarried mother in a time that was considered deeply shameful. For Esther, she has to stand up to the king and risk her life to try and save her people. And this theme is most perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus. The son of the most high God arrives on earth in the body of a mere human. He's born into poverty in a stable, growing up in a nowhere town, scratching a living as a carpenter. Yet, this seemingly unimportant man was to have the most important job of all. He was to surrender his life, allowing himself to die for the sins of humanity and take his place on the heavenly throne. So what about us? What is God calling us to? I mean that in the sense of these stories, a specific trial or event that God wants us to step up to. But I also mean in a general sense. What ministry is God calling you or has God called you to? For me, well, in some ways, I find it hard to compare myself to these humble biblical characters. I'm a privileged, middle-class, straight, cis, white man with a full-time job and a mortgage and all the advantages that come from having those things in the 21st century in a first-world country. But my calling as a preacher, I feel like I'm not set up for, at least not in the world's eyes. I'm an introvert. I've never formally studied theology and I'm prone to anxiety and self-doubt. The point is, I can relate to this idea of God choosing unlikely people for his purposes. Because I've lost count of the number of times people have given me prophetic words about leadership and about wielding the sword of the Spirit from Ephesians 6, otherwise known as God's Word. So here I am, fulfilling that calling, 
even though from a worldly perspective, I'm an unlikely person to do so. So what about you? What has God called you to, even if you seem like an unlikely candidate? Are you doing it? And if you are doing it, do you approach it with the courage of Esther? Has God called you into administration, evangelism, hospitality, leadership, worship, mission, or prophecy? Or is there a specific event that God has called you to or a decision to make? Could be a career change, could be a house move, could be befriending someone and helping lead them to Jesus, could be to give away a bunch of money, could be helping start a new ministry, could be anything. But a huge caveat for these kinds of things. If you think God is calling you to a major life change, follow Esther's example. This is Esther's five-step model for making big decisions. Step one, calculate the cost. Esther understood that her life was at stake. If you think God is calling you to something, make sure you're completely aware of the sacrifices involved. Money, comfort, time, whatever it is, be fully aware. Step two, set priorities. Esther believed the safety of all the Jews was more important than just her own. What's important to you? Financial security? Family? The time you spend putting into other things? Figure out what's important and how it fits into your calling. Step three, prepare. This is a mega important one. Esther gathered support, fasted, and almost certainly prayed. Before taking action, confide in others, pray, fast, plan carefully. Read and reread any scriptures pertinent to your calling. Do all that first, act later. Step four, make decisions. Esther allowed three days for her preparations and for others' support. A spiritual calling involves practical decision-making. Make sufficient plans, but set a realistic timescale so you don't end up dragging your feet. Finally, and only then, step five, take emboldened action. After all that preparation, as we find out in chapter five, Esther courageously, boldly approached the king. Once we've followed the first four steps of Esther's example, we should be equally ready to step up to the plate with our own callings. Now, before I wrap up, a quick word about how we hear our callings. How do we learn about the thing God wants us to do before we start affirming it through our preparations? This can be a sticking point for modern followers of Jesus. We might think of big, crazy signs from God, like the burning bush in front of Moses, or the angels who visited Mary and Zechariah. But if we don't get those unmissable, unmistakably divine signs, how are we supposed to know God's calling for our lives or what decisions he wants us to make? Well, let's look at our passage. How does God speak to Esther? Not through angels or a burning bush, but through her cousin, 
It's Mordecai who God placed in just the right set of circumstances to warn Esther and help her understand what God wants her to do. When Esther is initially hesitant about the risk, it's Mordecai who helps her understand the stakes. God can place trusted people in our lives to help us understand what he wants us to do. It's our job to listen and discern the helpful voices from the noise of doubters, skeptics, and those who want to see us fail. Or as Proverbs puts it, it's our job to weigh every word. This is probably one of the more common and grounded ways we can learn of our callings. Like I mentioned earlier, it was other people who pointed me towards my calling. Though there are plenty of other methods and examples of receiving callings throughout the Bible. We can learn about them when God speaks to us through Scripture. We can learn about them through dreams and visions. Psalm 12 talks about hearing our callings by getting in touch with nature. Finally, and the other one I can most relate to, we can hear God's voice directly through a gentle whisper. Now, if you're ever unsure about whether God is calling you to something, the first two I mentioned are good litmus tests. If enough trusted, Jesus-loving friends of yours contradict an apparent calling, it might be a sign it's not from God. And if a supposed calling contradicts teaching in Scripture, then it's not from God. But if you've been through Esther's five-step program and God has clearly called to you, it's time to act. Remember Mordecai's warning to Esther, if the signs are clear and you don't act, you are disobeying God. Yes, Jesus died for our disobedience, but it is still our responsibility to show our love for God by aiming for perfect obedience. I'll leave you with this. In his New Testament book, the Apostle James quotes the Proverbs in Greek, saying, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. If we're to hear and take up our God-given callings, this is the attitude we need to take. Remember, from a worldly perspective, Esther and Mordecai were far from ideal candidates to carry out their divine callings. Equally, our callings should not make us feel high and mighty. God chooses us despite our weaknesses. We should approach our callings with humility, elevating others above ourselves, giving ourselves over to love of God and neighbor. So may God speak clearly in communicating our callings and give us the wisdom and courage to approach our callings with humility and love. Amen.